1974, Bob Jake Jacobson from Jake's Archery today. Uh, mm-hmm. Jake also makes hot shot releases. His family owns that company. Uh, do they still? I don't well, think maybe they not. Do. They no. used to. They used to. Yeah, they probably used to. Yeah, they they originated that product. I mean, in fact, I think Jake shot a hot shot when he won back in 1974. It's uh, podcast number 20 here at Easton. I'm George Techmichel with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and we are uh, very pleased to be with you for what's probably the last podcast of 19 or 2015. Yeah, you were 20 years back, right there. You know. 1995. Let's just say medication does wonders. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, with the Christmas season uh, coming uh, up fast and uh, uh, New Year's immediately after, we've got the ATA show in the calendar. We've got uh, Rob Coffold's big tournament in Lancaster, the Lancaster Classic on the calendar. You're shooting that, Steve? Yeah, Neem first. Neem and then Lancaster. Classic, yep. And then Vegas, which yep. is the big culmination for the Indoor Archery World Cup. Neem will be the third stage, the final uh, qualifying stage. And then you get to Vegas, you shoot Saturday at Vegas. That's actually the last qualification day for Archery World Cup, and they'll take that score, seed the top 16 in each category, men's compound, women's compound, men's recurve, women's recurve. And then we'll have the big show on Saturday night. Possibly, uh, I think, uh, unless you qualify, are you planning to shoot that thing, Steve? Saturday shoot night? What? Saturday night oh, in Vegas? Oh, Vegas? No. Yeah. Okay, no, no. so you and I will be emceeing that thing in Vegas yep. on Saturday night. Yeah, I guess it's possible I qualify if I did if I did really well at Neem and then shot. If you do well in Neem and you do well in Vegas, you may yeah. qualify. So we'll, we'll, it's possible. It's not we'll leave probable. That, we'll leave that extra microphone handy for you. With, <laughs> with everybody going to so many of the prior the first two events you know bangkok and marrakesh there's it's pretty hard to to qualify on just two events now you have to have three sometimes even four to yeah it's it, more difficult so. now yeah. uh, for sure and you know i i qualified for one of the first ones uh back in the day and uh i also was scheduled to announce so you know i was the last seed i was 16th right and so i'm up against crispin duanis i handed the microphone over to jay bars okay and I had Crispin on the ropes for the first couple of... Uh, then you just bowed out gracefully. <laughs> yeah, then I bowed out gracefully so I could do my job. But <laughs> <laughs> We'll leave it at that. But yeah, Crispin got scared. You're, you're welcome, Crispin. You're welcome, Crispin. All right, so we've got a few listener questions that we want to tackle before we uh, wrap up the year here in Podcast 20. And uh, the first question comes from uh, our, our loyal listener, Andy, in, uh, in Oz. Yes. Aussie Andy uh, has a question for Steve and a question for me. Steve... If you were to narrow down the most important part of what makes you personally a good archer, what would it be? So that's your first question. Um, What's the most important part of what makes you a good archer? I think, I think there's, there's two parts to that. One is the mental side, and that's just that I don't think uh, – I, I don't know how to say this. Just you that. have to have a little bit of uh, arrogance to yourself to believe that you can do it. Confidence – now, yep. Jay Bars and I have discussed this. Maybe some of you have heard the extended podcast we did with Jay Bars a while back. Jay uh, is, you know, it's important to be cognizant of the difference between being cocky mm-hmm. and being arrogant. Yep. Right? Cocky is kind of internal, right? I would it's, say arrogant is internal. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess it depends on how you <laughs> interpret those words. Yeah. And what those words mean to you personally. Yeah. So go on. I just say, yeah. I mean, within yourself, you have to, number one, believe that you are good enough and that's self-belief yeah, number self-belief. one so you could call that 
cockiness, arrogance, whatever. I mean, I, I don't let it extend out to other people or people wouldn't like me, but, um, what makes you think that? No, never mind. <laughs> and then the other, the, the physical side of it, I think is uh, shot execution. You can build a really good archer out of someone who has great shot execution, because if you can't aim well, you still can score well by executing well. Okay. And even if you aim awesome, if you execute poorly, you know, things can go south quickly. So yeah, I think a, a self-belief number one on the mental side, and and then also number two not caring i mean i i don't shoot so that i can post on facebook my score you know i shoot for my personal accomplishments you know that's it it's just me what about your goal setting process do you have one do you set goals and 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 decide what those goals are in advance or do you just uh, yeah yeah i mean you got to have a goal for everything you know for me obviously it's uh it depends on the tournament. I, I've told myself I have three tournaments, and when I win those three, I'm retiring forever, and I'm never shooting a bow again. Can you share with us what those might no. be? No. Okay, all right. But you know what those are <laughs> yeah. in your mind. They're on your bucket list, I guess. Yeah, there's three I want to win. And okay, I bet I, I know those, what one is. I bet I could guess on Vegas probably yeah, being one of, of those. Yeah, of course. Everyone, everyone who is competitive, who's ever you know, done it, even tasted some podiums, that's one they they have on the bucket list and yeah i would love to win vegas that's okay. that's huge but at the same time right now i have to take a smaller step i would love to make it out of day one of vegas with a 300 because i've never done that i've shot 899 and like 82 x's but i've never made it out of day one gotcha and so that's that's the goal for this year all right it's a good goal and i know you'll do it second part of andy's question for you is if you could what would you do more of to further improve i would I would practice more. <laughs> That's, Spend more time practicing. Yeah, it's because uh, let's face it, you're working a full time job. You're working at Easton as the pro staff coordinator, but you're doing far more than just you know talking to pro staff and you know working out equipment needs and what. Yeah, you're you're right now. For example, all next week you're going to be packing everything the company needs for the ATA show. Mm -hmm. Huge responsibility. Yeah, a lot of pressure. You know to make sure everything's right. Yeah. to you know because um, you know our boss is. Uh, uh, a demanding guy. He loves the ATA show. He loves the show, and he wants to have a great experience for our dealers at that show. Mm -hmm. And you're you're the stucky for making sure all that stuff shows up. I am, uh, yeah, and that's uh, so. I feel like right now, that's all I do is yeah. ATA show. And you're not focused on practicing for Neem, and you're no. not practice. You're not practicing right now. Yeah, you're, I don't. I don't shoot till Neem. So I'm this week. I'm getting through. You know, I'm, I'm here till eight o'clock at night, just making sure we get through the week, and then. Next week, get everything out the door, and I'll feel a little better, and I'll pick up the bow again. But so for me, it's it's practice. But I mean, there's a purpose behind that too. Um, you know, like right now, I can I can look at the way I'm shooting my bow, and I'm getting I'm shooting great scores. You know, and I've done that the last couple of tournaments, and I've been competitive. But I'm relying on you know a foundation I built a long time ago, mm -hmm. and. I want to. You have to refine that to win. Is this foundation unique to archery for you? Uh, because for those of you who don't know, Steve was a uh, decathlete and also a top college basketball player, so an all-round athlete. You know, Steve is six foot seven, and you know, I would love to say I was a top college player, but mm. I was a college player. Good. Well, <laughs> let's face it, Boise, Boise State, right? Uh, Idaho State. Yeah. Idaho State. Excuse mm. me. 
significant program, you know, well known in in the Western region. Yeah, we were a Division One program. Division One so. program. Yep. So you know, that's I mean, that's a that a lot of people will go through life and never come close to what you were doing in, in yeah. college. So, True. so look at it from that perspective. Is it stuff you learn doing other sports, or is it stuff that you apply to archery specifically? I think you learn the competitiveness growing up, you know, and and playing other sports. Yes. Um, but with an archery, it's a game all its own. You know, if I get nervous for a basketball game, that's fine. I go out and run around, move. In archery, I got to find a way to remain still, you know, if you're nervous. And I've actually, the as I said, you know, you build the foundation. I think that's built around good shot execution and and proper technique and not cheating yourself. I mean, if you're, there's no shortcuts here. You got to learn to do it right. Once you learn to do it right, then you start doing it better. And it applies in all aspects of sport. Yeah. So, um, you know, building that foundation of, of good shot execution and proper equipment tuning and stuff like that, that's what I'm relying on right now. But that gets me so far, you know. It's not quite far enough to win the big one. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of refinement and sharpening and, and things like that to get to where I need to be for a big event. How common, Andy's next question, how common is it, that high-performance athletes keep training and performance diaries. Do you do that? No. I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of my students in Japan do. And I would say that it's uh, the the higher the level of the recurve shooter, in my experience, the more likely they are to do what you're describing. And it is a requirement of athletes in places like the Olympic Training Center here in the U.S. to do that. Mm. Yeah. And they share that with their coach once a week or whatever. And Yeah. You know. I, I'm not a big fan of that. We, when I was running track and field, we used to do that kind of, and mm-hmm. I was never one to really like doing it then either. And I, I don't know. I think maybe that's just, is it because you didn't buy into the method behind it or I probably, you know, I don't feel like writing it down on paper is, uh-huh. is going to help me next time I'm out. I mean, I think having a self-awareness of everything that happened in your practice session, the way you're shooting and then taking that approach, you know, helps. But it, well, it wouldn't hurt to have a, a record book of mental notes. I don't know if everybody can keep that stuff in their head. Some people, okay, I've said this before, you know what I'm about to say. There are two kinds of archers that are really, really good. Yeah. And they're, you know, we've got basically, you know, Wiley Coyote genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I count guys like Jay Bars in that area. Simon Fairweather. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant people. You're pretty smart yourself in spite of your behavior. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I'll joke aside, you know, you're, you're in that category. And then there's other archers, great archers, great people, but they don't, they're not terribly intellectual about the whole thing. You know, they're not, they're not, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, and then you got people completely in between like me, you know, (laughs) grinders. Come on. So the point is this, the point is this, um, guys like J bars, you know, who are on the genius side of the spectrum didn't believe in that stuff Mm -hmm. until they jay tells the story of basically challenging rick mckinney who was basically pushing some of the u.s team members into adopting a mental management program where you write down your goals and you've got you know performance cards that you've filled out i will win and enjoy shooting the gold medal round in the olympic games put it on his mirror looked at it every day for a year when won the olympic games Mm -hmm. right now, that's voodoo uh, on some level, but the subconscious is a powerful thing. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there is a place for this stuff. I, I, I think clearly there's a place for this stuff because it works. Mm-hmm. 
And for some people, they don't need it. Guys like you, you know, you keep it in your head. You're also self-coached. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, for, for a lot of people, they need outside guidance on stuff like this. And a card can be outside guidance. So I think uh, another part of it for me is maybe just trying to keep it simple, not overcomplicate it. So I don't yeah. want to try to bug up my mind with what's what, you know, at some point you do have to dumb it down and just shoot. I like that. Uh, I like that as a final word on that subject. End of subject. Uh, on that one. Now, Andy's got an additional question here. He's asking me, having been to many competitions over the years, can you think of any obvious competitor preparation or competition procedural familiarity shortcomings that have significantly influenced outcomes? You know, Lame that's a terms. clever way. That's a clever way of Andy asking me what I think of the whole scorecard debacle that we've seen this year. I think that's how I'm going to approach this. I didn't see it. All right. So the question from Andy is, what what mistakes have I seen competitors make that have affected the outcome of competition? That's that's how I'm going to reparse his question. Now check this out. The executive board of World Archery has just made a number of key decisions and changed rules effective April 1st of 2016. And the one we're talking about here involves surrounding the procedure for signing scorecards at international events. Now, earlier this season, you and I were in Copenhagen, and we had the debacle involving Rio Wild's scorecard. And mm-hmm. at that time, you and I said, yeah, we'll, we'll address this later. And we kind of didn't really address it later. And Change then later, the outcome of the tournament. Later in the season, Ojin Hyuk at the test event for the Olympic Games similarly made a big mistake. He didn't sign his scorecard. Got himself uh, lost half his score. Mm-hmm. You know, and apologized for it to his teammates abjectly. He was devastated by making a mistake like that. And he took responsibility, which you have to have respect for. Now, here's what's happened. The executive board of World Archery has changed the rules so that starting April 1st of 2016, at events in which there is a single paper score sheet and an electronic system in use at the same time, during only the ranking round, and as long as the score sheet totals are completely filled in and signed, they'll go off the electronic system. Now, think about what that means. It means you're still responsible for correctly filling in your scorecard. You are still responsible for having your scorecard signed. You are still responsible for the information to be fully filled in. What they're not going to do is penalize you if you suck at math. If you suck at math, or if you can't, or if you, if you can't tell the difference between a 2 and a 3 on a scorecard, the electronic system, because the electronic system showed real wild had yeah. a three something something 356 knows, but he yeah. signed for a 256 on the paper scorecard and that's what he got jammed with now whether right or wrong that was a two by the way on the on that card it's unequivocally a two on that card because the threes are threes and all the other twos on the card look like twos i understand how this happened i get it but now in the future a guy like rio wouldn't get screwed by that mm-hmm. as long as he signs the card and as long as all the arrow values are properly filled in. Yep. They can then go in and, and do the math. But if you hand in a scorecard with no signature, you're DQ'd. So sign it. Do not pass go. Might you as well just sign it right no, at the beginning of the tournament. Disqualified is what it says. Yeah. You, you may as well just sign it at the beginning of the tournament. You might as well, right? Because now you're signing for the value on the scorecard of the arrows, and you're signing for just that quantity, mm-hmm. right? If the totals turn out to be wrong, but the electronic system is correct, you're saved. Mm-hmm. All right. So, 
kudos to World Archery's Executive Committee for a sensible solution to a horrible situation. Yeah, our approach to that was, uh, as an American team at World Cups following that, we just took the paper. We did it ourselves. To make sure it was right. Yeah, and that's going to be my approach going forward. I'm going to do the paper, or I'm going to do the electric. I'm going to do something. I'm not going to stand and watch. but, But here's the deal, Steve. When you're at a tournament and you're shooting, what is your job? Shoot arrows. And preserve your score. Yeah, true. Right? You, as a top shooter, are responsible for what's on that card. Mm-hmm. So you're taking that responsibility. Yeah. Well, what World Archery has done, once again, is they have they have uh, absol- absolved you of math errors. Right. And they're, they're going off the electronic system. It's a good move. I think it's yeah, a great I mean, move. And I think it should help avoid... Not all, because again, you still see, you keep seeing people make these dumb mistakes of not handing in a signed scorecard. Fundamental stuff. And let's face it, I'm sorry, if you've gotten to a World Cup, you've been around the block. You know how these things work. Come on. Mm-hmm. So Maybe that's what it is. You know, you just get lackadaisical. Yeah, you get lackadaisical and you get lazy and you take things for granted. And, you know, um, I'm not saying, by the way, that, that Rio or O did that. Right, I'm not saying they got lazy. I'm not saying that they took things for granted. What I am saying is they got screwed by their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Now there's less chance of that happening. Yeah, it's like it's like Tiger Woods said: from the minute you tee off until you sign your scorecard, you got to have complete focus. Are there any common mistakes that you see people making at a competition? Um, yeah, I would say the main thing I see people mistake-wise is maybe not keeping up with the latest schedules, making sure that. You know, they're in the right place at the right time. That happens frequently. We, uh, I was at DOS for the Asian Championship uh, back in November, and uh, one of the particular teams, um, they weren't communicating internally. So one of the team managers had picked up the revised schedule but didn't share it with the rest of the team. So one of the team managers, the coaches, showed up on time for the OR start, and the other one in the same category, the other coach with his shooter, did not. And almost mm-hmm. lost that shooter their match. And it's just because they weren't talking to each other. So stuff like that. Unnecessary. For both of us, what's the best piece of archery-related advice that you have ever been given? Hmm. I'll let you go first. Okay. Mine was from Jay Bars. And Jay told me very point blank because I was taking a long time coming through the clicker. I was, I was uh, shooting hesitantly. He said, you know what? And I, you know, he kind of borrowed this from Al Henderson. He said, no matter what you shoot, your friends are still going to be your friends. And those people who don't like you, well, screw them. So just shoot the arrow. And he said it a little more piquantly than that, right? We still got the clean switch flipped on iTunes, so I won't <laughs> tell you exactly how he said it. But you can imagine. And you know what? I, I, had, a, I had a sort of a epiphany. I thought to myself, self, why are you taking so long to shoot the shot? Why are you being so careful under pressure? Just shoot the arrow, you Too know. Much deliberation. And if you can shoot the arrow with good focus, rhythm, and timing, you will have success. Sure enough, just before the uh, start of the uh, the World Field Championship that I shot in 2004, I applied that, and I shot the best I've ever shot in a uh, major competition, and it worked really well. And it stuck. It has stuck since. So that's the best advice I've gotten. Second best, Tim Strickland. Let it float. Yeah, let it move. Yep. Uh, man, I've got so much ATA stuff in my head. I can't remember much beyond the start of the month. But, um, yeah, probably some of the best I've I've heard is uh, 
more to do with the the mental side of things you know there's a lot of ways to shoot a compound bow form is less important um all you have to really do is hold in the middle and get the release to fire right it sounds easy so i there, it's hard to to go tell someone this is how you do it you know this is how you do it blah 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 but find the way you do it and just continue to do it that way and and uh build consistency that's the physical side of it and then like I always preach, I mean, the mental side, don't, don't shoot for Facebook. Don't shoot to post your awesome score and then lay an egg in the tournament. You know, the best approach is to not care, kind of fly under the radar and, and just do what you do when it counts. Yep. Okay. I like that. Next set of questions comes from handsome Dave, uh, who writes, could we expound on any tips or formulas for determining shaft selection for higher speed bows like the PSE full throttle or the Bowtech 360. Both are very much above the 340 on the chart for the hard cam. Yeah. They are uh, pretty stout. It's it's really hard sometimes to nail down an arrow that works well with those. Um, what I always recommend is go one size stiffer. I mean, you're, I'm guessing you're talking with a bow like that. I doubt you're seeing a lot of target stuff with it. Um so you're probably going to be looking more towards the hunting arrows, I'm guessing. But yeah, you gotta you gotta probably look a whole half value stiffer. So if you're looking at 350 on the chart, you might look at 300, you know, something like that, 50 thousandths of a spine. Um, we ran into a lot of those when I was working at the shop back in the day, and it uh, it was a whole new beast to tune one of those things. So you you just got to go stiff on the arrows. Ray of the Gosnell's Archery uh, Club in Perth in Western Australia asks, uh, hey, George and Big Cat, this is an issue at my club, and I hope you can come up with the answer. Two or three or four fletch. Why did most target shooters arrive at three fletch on their arrow? I'm sure there's some history behind this, but right, I so do the, not know it. There's a reason for having four fletch. The reason for four fletch is so that you don't have to orient the arrow. You can look at, if you're hunting and you want to keep your eye on whatever you want to hit, mm -hmm. then a four-fletch arrow doesn't care how it's knocked. Right. You don't have to worry about the index fletch being out of the window. Yeah, 90, 90, 90, 90. But it has more weight, it has more drag, and it's louder in flight. Less clearance as well. Two-fletch can plane. Two-fletch can, can plane off in one direction or another. Three-fletch is naturally stable and induces rotation, especially if you're talking about feathers. Mm. And has more clearance. And that's why stuff like the V2 rocket that the Germans launched in World War II, all the way to you know um, some modern missiles, are typically three fletch, <laughs> three <laughs> veins, as it were. <laughs> what do they use but for glue? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, aluminum uh, welding compound, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that... Uh, that that explains. Yeah. Yeah. Next question is for you, Steve. It's uh, coming to us from Milan, and his question. Uh, by the way, Milan entered uh, uh, his guess of Rick McKinney as the winner of the Vegas shoot. We also had a guess about Johnny Williams, but we had about uh, twelve guesses that were in the first hour after the podcast dropped, and um, that was, of course, for Bob Jake Jacobson for the correct answer for the uh, drawing for the X-23 uh, or 27 arrows. And our listener in Canada, Mr. Reed Fowley uh, in, in uh, Manitoba, is the lucky winner. He awesome. was the first. You know what? I, um, I have an app 
that does my podcast stuff. And on my Apple Watch, it'll pop up when the thing drops, right? Mm-hmm. So I get, a, I get a, a notification. I got the notification, and 10 minutes later, the email came. I in. got the email from Reed. What freaked me out a little bit is the, the, the whole contest thing was about 40 minutes into the podcast. So he got the thing got as soon as it game. dropped. Well, I don't think he got ahead of the game, but he got uh, that thing as soon as it dropped. Oh, maybe your watch didn't update immediately. It might not have. Yes. You know, it's, it is a first-world problem watch. So, yeah, he, he got right on the ball. Though. He was on the ball, no doubt about it. We got a bunch of folks with the correct answer, but uh, he was first, so he won the, uh, he won the arrows. Yeah, you know, I shoot a lot with Jake, actually, to this day. Yeah. He's like Isn't 75. He a great guy? Yeah. I love that guy. Yeah, He's he, got a great family. Yeah, he uh, shoots a lot of field archery at Timpanogos yep, Archers. Yep. He, he is so awesome. To, every year... We go up there, we shoot some league, and then we'll be like, "Man, who who did the you know?" He'll, he'll shovel the the uh, target stakes, he'll flatten everything out. He, he puts a lot of work on that club. He absolutely does. It's like seventy five. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it. And yeah, he doesn't act like it, and no. he's one of the kindest people I know in our sport. Yeah, you super know? good guy. Well, he's obviously generated lots of good karma over the years because right. he's got a great life, and he uh, he really enjoys our sport to this day. And I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll catch up with him in Vegas. Oh yeah, looking we'll forward see. to it. He'll you can always find him. Jake will be there on the last day watching the shoot-off with Pete Shepley. Him and Pete will go to the yep. safari show, and, you know, look at all that stuff, and then they come around to the... So so here's sort of the secret of my career. You know, Pete Shepley and I are pretty good friends. Okay. And uh, we've been good friends for 25 years probably. And, uh, you know, I was working at Hoyt, but Pete's always got a kind word for me. And, mm-hmm. You know, we always spend a little time talking at, at places like So I did have a great maybe half-hour conversation with Pete and Jake at the Las Vegas shoot. Wow. And you know what? I thought to myself, dang, I am, I am really fortunate to have friends like that, yeah. to be able to sit here and, and just talk over a drink with Pete Shepley, legendary guy, started PSE yeah. on his own. He used to be a, a Magnavox engineer, right? An electronic <laughs> engineer for Magnavox. And Jake Jacobson, who built a multi-million dollar archery business out of a storefront in Orem, Utah. Now he's one of the biggest distributors in the world. Pretty crazy. And and they're nice people. Yeah, they can go sit. Yeah, they, if you want to sit by him at the Vegas tournament, there's a chair. They're open. just awesome people. Yeah, they're not they're they're not down on the f- well. Not that being down on the floor is a bad thing, but you know they're not looking for exclusivity or anything mm-hmm. like that. They're just right there. Nope. And you know what? They'll pitch in, like you pointed out. Jake's moving rocks around up there. Yeah, too. yeah. And you know. Pete's one of the work, hardest working guys I know in the archery business, and he's a great guy. So, Pretty you know, cool. just it's such a privilege to know some of these folks. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go waxing poetic here, but it's pretty cool. All right, super job on the podcast, according to Milan. Thank you, sir. Be nice to hear a bit on what the big cat alluded to at the end of number 18 regarding the importance of technical aspects of correct serving size and arrow flight or tuning. It'd be nice if I remembered what I alluded to Well, you to brought as it well. up. Yeah. Well, you said you wanted to talk about serving, so we'll get started here by I, talking about knock it fit. It was probably, yeah, I mean, one of the most common tuning issues we always saw when I was at Hoyt was, uh, you know, from too tight of a knock fit. And, you know, with, at Easton, that's why we make multiple sizes of grooves and things like that. Um, most all compound shooters should be using large groove knocks. A lot of times you need to maybe look at your uh, – your serving size on your center serving and and reserve if necessary. There's uh you can get like you know, a set of digital calipers on Amazon for like twenty bucks. It's been a great investment for me. Um ideal center serving size is probably somewhere between point one oh eight and point one twelve inches. Yeah. So um 
So, you know, there, there's an ATA standard for all this stuff. I didn't know there was a standard for center size. There is. And um, so here's the deal. Yeah, we'll talk about knocks a little bit here. Why do we have so many knocks, knock designs, knock groove sizes? Biter, for example, has three mm-hmm. of just groove sizes. Right. Right. Well, it's because there's wild variation, and there has been wild variation in the past. It's less than there used to be, but still some variation among bow manufacturers, center servings in particular. I'll give you an example. Back in uh, the very first product that I worked on for Easton when I joined the company was the Superknock. I was the project leader for that thing, working under Walt Goodwin down in Van Nuys. Mm-hmm. And the Super, excuse me, the Superknock was mostly finished by the time I joined the project. And um, we were working with Tom Fisher from AAE to design that knock. And our design was a certain size groove. And Tom came back with a groove that was smaller. And I'm like, Tom, why is this thing so small? He's like, well, it should be smaller. I'm a bow hunter and I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, he's a bow hunter and he absolutely knows what he's talking about. But he and I had a little conflict on the tight fit of that thing. Here was the problem. At that time, Martin Archery was actually you know, still effectively a, a powerful compound bow company. And they're putting all their bows out the window at 125 diameter on the center serving. 10 thou bigger than, than standard. 11 thou bigger than standard. Because 114 is pretty much the standard. And I walked into a conference room holding a bow by the knock <laughs> <laughs> to demonstrate... I wasn't politically correct back then. To demonstrate that, hey, this sucker's too tight. We need to rework it. So we did. But in the, in the end, um, what we came up with was a compromise because bow hunters, when you let down, if you're in a tree stand and you let down and that arrow spits off the string, yeah, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's tight enough so it won't come off the string on its own when you let down. And it's not so tight that it interferes unduly with the shot. And the right. product has withstood the test of time, arguably. Yeah. Now, for, for target shooters, we designed the 3D Superknock, which is a uh, has a different escapement and a different vertical profile to work better with D-loops and to work better in general for the needs of target compound people. Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's still really well-regarded yeah. knock. That's what everybody uses pretty much. We have the G-Knock which was developed to be a recurve knock, but it's still widely accepted among many recurve and compound shooters today in both groove sizes. Yeah, so that's that's probably what I was alluding to is just making sure you have a good uh, fit because, yeah, if you can hold your bow up by your knock, you're not going to get... Not a good fit. You're not going to get forgiving arrow release. Correct. Now, the, with that said, how do we tell if it's too tight, too loose, whatever? I was thinking about that, and I think the best thing to do, uh, I can post a video on my my facebook page i think it's facebook.com slash big cat archery okay or my instagram at steve anderson 88 um so i'll put together my bow sometime this next week and i'll show a quick demonstration on on how to make sure you have good knock all right and here's my easy one for recurve shooters uh take the uh take the bow and aim it at a uh, target at a meter away and pluck the string one inch and the arrow should separate if it doesn't probably too tight Mm-hmm. That's basically how I do it. But yeah, we'll still throw down a video to demonstrate. Good. People will look forward to that. Once again, what are those email? Or sorry, what are those pod? It's you know uh, trying to say. It's facebook.com slash big cat archery and uh, Instagram at Steve Anderson 88. All right. And people can follow you on Twitter as well, right? 
Same on Twitter, at SteveAnderson88. All right. So that hopefully covers that aspect of things. What about D-loops? What's your philosophy on... Uh, you've seen the D-loop that was originally developed by uh, Clint Freeman? That's sort of a... Uh, some of the French guys are using it, too. It, it goes underneath and oh, like does a, a half twist. It's like a torqueless. Torqueless D-loop. That You lose some distance with that thing. Yeah, you lose some sight tape because of what actually you know you're, yeah. uh, you're but what do you think of the principle um i don't like it because of that because i want to shoot the i can't shoot that at at reading i can't make it 100 yards oh you got that long shot on the yeah, uh, changes, can or whatever that is. changes your peep to arrow uh-huh. you know? so you lose like 20 yards on your sight tape and um scores seem to be pretty good with a conventional d-loop tie-in so i just continue with that one i like a good soft material that's the key to me is like a the Brownell LC, which stands for low creep, is pretty good stuff. BCY has a new one. It's actually called, uh, the one I'm using is called crossbow cocking cord, and the freaking stuff is awesome. For D-loop? Yes. Does it melt well and all that? Yeah, you, you got to uh, pinch it with pliers. Like so, our elite D-loop pliers? Yeah, yeah, plug. Um, so, yeah, you pinch it with pliers. Um well, of course, there's going to be. This is the Easton Target podcast. <laughs> what do you think? This is a freaking charity. It's the only product we've sold in like you know two years. Here, here's, so the here's, the here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Let me explain. Let me explain you something, Lucy. Easton Foundations is a charity. Okay. <laughs> Easton Foundations is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Easton Technical Products. We, different story. Yeah. So, yes, uh, that's. But we haven't even tried to you know pitch a product in a long time. So Not, that's that's it really. Well, we don't need to. No. Um, so the product <laughs> speaks for itself. All right. Yes, you'd hold the you hold it in pliers, then fray it out, then melt it. If you just try to melt it, it'll just suck into itself, and you can't you don't get the 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 ball on the end that you need. So, um, so it behaves a little differently. Than yeah. You. Then like a the BCY you know number twenty four whatever the standard. Okay. So stuff what's the is. one you like again? Uh, it's it's called BCY cocking cord, crossbow cocking cord, crossbow cocking cord, CCC. Yep. Yep, it's good stuff, truthfully. Um, they might have a new name for it. They might be actually, you know, monikering it under something more related to D-loop material. Well, you ought to have a chat with BCY Bob. And yeah, get I'll see Bob. So I'll, I'll ask him, but it's good stuff. It's like a, I think it's about a 1.8 or 2 millimeters. So it's pretty standard size, but you cannot wear it out. It lasts forever. So, so did like. you see, it's uh, soft, very soft. All right. I think that. Covers that pretty well. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the World Archery Executive Committee um, went ahead and awarded the next four years worth of uh, big events? Yeah, I'm actually pretty excited about. Yeah, so uh, the World Archery Championships are going to once again move up towards Scandinavia. The next World Archery Championship uh, in 2019. Netherlands, right? Netherlands. Yeah. It's going to be in, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Hertogenbosch. No idea, but that's cool. Yes, it is cool. For one thing, we love going to the Netherlands. I love the Netherlands. Number two, I'll probably be able to cash in some of the extra Danish kroner that I'm stuck with. No, just kidding. <laughs> I do need to, I have $100 worth of Danish kroner I need to do something with. And um, the Dutch Federation is also going to have the um, uh, the para world championship yep. there too so that's awesome i feel like those guys know how to put on a good show they do they're very good at what they do you look at um like sonder dolerman's event kings of archery you know he does a good show oh our <laughs> looks like mark pizzoni's trying to join us for the podcast here hey pizzoni get yourself in here hey 
I just uh, we're we're doing our podcast. Oh, look at that! That is awesome. Mark's got his new custom his new quiver, quiver, and I dare I will pay you twenty dollars to wear that on the line in Vegas. Because <laughs> it, it suits me well, doesn't it? George suits me perfectly, doesn't it? It does, but we're not going to tell the listeners what it says. <laughs> So, so Mark, um, I, you know, you're you're here uh, a little impromptu here. Our president, Mark Bazzoni, who you've heard on our previous podcasts, this is our end of your podcast. Oh, cool. So, I'm going to throw you under the bus here and just ask you for a few oh, words. Boy. Okay, a few words to our uh, fifteen thousand or so listeners that we've got uh, regarding uh, the archery year past mm-hmm. and uh, where you see things are going. Okay, uh, archery year past. First of all, from a company perspective. What a great time we had producing some great products and having fun and really, really enjoying what we do here. I mean, it's one thing to be making product that is just a widget or whatever, but to be producing products that I've been passionate about since I was a kid and seeing other people doing it, it's awesome. From a personal perspective, I had a pretty good year hunting. Yeah, tell us about it. I mean, well, I think I found probably... The majority of animals that had either reached senility or were blind because I was able to shoot uh, my first bull elk with a bow, which was awesome in Colorado. Oh, yeah. I were, you, shot, were you with Fred? Or? I was with Fred Eichler. Just a awesome. I mean, I had a 50-yard opportunity. It was just a raghorn that I shot, but you would think I shot a 340 bull. I mean, I was jacked. It ran about 20 yards and tipped over. And the guy I was with, Darren Cottle from here, he's giving me the thumbs up. And Eichler came over and he goes, Mark, what's so cool about this is where you shot this, I can get to it. And we don't have to search for it. It was awesome. So He is so enthusiastic, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a great guy to hunt with, and we had a great time. So that was cool. And I've shot bigger antlered bucks. I shot a, a pretty nice uh, whitetail in Kansas. What was cool about it wasn't the size of his rack. He had a decent rack. His body was monster. His neck was huge. And George, he was beat up and gray like me. I mean, (laughs) he had gray in his muzzle. He had scars on his face. He was so freaking cool. And, you know, to take an animal that's probably had other hunters chasing him and been unsuccessful, and for me to be able to take an animal like that, what what a thrill. So I had a great year personally and fun here building product and having fun with people. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk to you on the podcast since you mm-hmm. got back from Copenhagen. Right. And, um, you know, we were just talking about stuff like uh, some of the reforms that World Archery just put in. You're not aware of this, but they, you know, that whole debacle with the scorecards at Copenhagen. Yes, yes, I remember They've that. gone ahead and changed it now. So, oh, okay. So cool. now, if, as long as you sign your scorecard and you got the correct arrow values on there, they're going with the electronic system. I so see. So I think that's, a, that's an so So that I understand, the idea was that someone had signed a scorecard that was incorrect. Yeah. And it cost huge, right? You got it. So you're saying they put put in a change to the rules to prevent that from happening yep, again. Yep. Okay, let me tell you, I'm, I didn't start off a target guy. I started off a hunter. Here's my big message that I would have for those listening about this. What leads to success? It's mistakes. It's mistakes. So somebody made a mistake and they went, that really shouldn't cost someone a tournament the mistakes that i've made in hunting since i was a little boy i had an opportunity to make those at every corner before i shot that old buck that looked like me and i learned from every one of those mistakes and put it together and scored it was awesome 
So there, there's a parallel, right? So mistakes in our lives, we get down about it and all that when they happen. They lead to our success. But Mark, with all the mistakes you've learned from, you still have that on your belt. <laughs> Don't tell people what that is. I can't I, because yeah, we have yeah. the clean switch flipped uh, on our iTunes account. I see. It, this is an inside joke. It so, is. So it's yeah. going to have to say that unless you show Anyhow, up in Vegas with that thing on the line. I ought to hand this back to people that actually know things about Target. Oh, and no, stop no, talking no, 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 no. Yeah, it's an yeah. awesome belt. All right. All right. All right. So, um, yeah. Thanks, Mark. All right. I, thank you. So <laughs> that is the most awesome quiver I have. Your bow. If anybody sees this thing, <laughs> you're going to understand Mark Pizzoni is a real person. <laughs> the other side of this is that he's taking his, we built a shooting range in the office, you know, yes, in the yes. and he's off to he's it, right? Going to he's shoot. going to, you know, here's the deal. I, I told you this story before, perhaps, and perhaps I bored the listeners with the same story. We had a, I had a shooting range in Jim Easton's office back in the day, Uh huh. about 20 yards. And I, I, I will never forget, one evening, I'm there, 9 o'clock at night, and Jim always habitually worked till 10 or 11 before he married Phyllis. And um, I just felt a presence behind me, and I turn around. I'm, I'm almost at full draw, and I let down, and I turn around, and there's Jim Easton and Peter Ubaroth. Peter Ubaroth, commissioner of baseball. Peter Ubaroth, the guy who ran the 84 Olympic Games, famous guy, uh, standing there watching me shoot. <laughs> and Jim, Jim... Uh, was offering some pointers. Now, can you imagine? You're, you're shooting in the office. Jim Easton is giving you pointers. Talk about awesome. I can imagine. Oh, dude. It was cool. So With Peter Uberoff. Yeah, yeah. So did you see Mark practicing with his buffalo, his Hoyt buffalo? I think he got inspired. Not yet. He, he's been shooting that thing. I've seen him. Yeah, I have seen him. I haven't really you know, paid attention. I think he was inspired by seeing Fred Eichler's success with it. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I know he really enjoyed Copenhagen. Though. Yes, he did. He, he liked did seeing. And, and like he said, Mark was never a, uh, a target guy. No, know? you know, before he joined Easton, Mark ran Botech. Right. And famously, kind of famously, Botech hasn't got a target pro staff, per se. It's it, some of its distributors have put one together. But generally yeah. speaking, Botech is not a force in target archery, per se. You know, serious bow hunting stuff. Um, built a great company before. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark had worked at Snap On before that. Anybody who uh, who's interested in more Mark Bazzoni's background, we have a dedicated podcast with Mark that uh, took place. Uh, oh, I'd say about four months ago. But the um, the interesting thing about Mark is how he embraces every part of the sport now. Yes, he loves the target side. He loves the hunting side. He's all about everything. Yeah, and he's a cool guy to work with. Yeah, he is cool. And if you saw his uh, quiver, you'd think he was even cooler. <laughs> uh, we can't. It's such a shame we can't tell people what's on that quiver belt. But uh, it'll. I'm sure it'll it's come his, to light. Yeah, it's his favorite word. Yes, it is. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, getting back to this uh, situation with uh, the Netherlands getting the uh, world championship. You know, the next world championship is Mexico City, which was going to be awesome because I, I that final they put on, they did a great job by all accounts. And uh, so they're going to have an awesome 2017 world championship in Mexico City. And then the Netherlands undoubtedly will have an awesome. I, I, have, I have big uh, big hopes for the Netherlands. I think they'll do good. You know, Ron and uh, Harm Vanderhoff, they have their, their uh, printing business they do. And then. Sonder Dolderman is like I said, he's put on his own tournament, and their tournaments are awesome. They're well promoted, and they're very well decorated. And I think that adds to the event. You know, when uh, yeah, when you walk in and it seems like you're at a big event, 
it really, you know. Uh, I, it, I attended the yeah. I attended the European Championship in, in in Amsterdam a couple of years ago in the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam, and it was awesome. Yeah, they just did a great job. It. Yeah, it just validates where where you're at and and what you're doing and and the importance of it. So some more uh, events. A total of eight events got uh, awarded by World Archery. Uh, Beijing is going to handle the Para Championships for. 2017, mm-hmm. which is great because they've got a great infrastructure to handle the para shooters, and it's going to be a little easier on the para athletes, I think, uh, from a temperature standpoint. And some other stuff. Some of those folks have issues regulating body temperature uh, and okay. stuff. So this is really going to be uh, good for them. Hopefully, the air quality will be will be equally good. Yankton, South Dakota, is going to have the World Archery Indoor Championship in 2018, and that's um, there's going to be some people saying Yankton, but you know what? It wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Yankton. Well, here's the deal. And, you know, Bruce and I and you spoke about this in our previous podcast, Bruce Call. I don't know if we talked about this. We didn't in the get podcast. into it deeply, but what we did talk about was it's just about as expensive now to do an indoor world championship as it is to do an outdoor world championship. You're talking budgets and over a million dollars. Yeah, a lot of money. Because you got to figure hotels, transportation, security. You got to figure feeding all these people the range the range yeah. the equipment the cost of you know getting volunteers from a to b you got to pay for judges to be there you got to pay for uh television you got to pay for all of this stuff it's a very expensive proposition well yankton is not a big town but you know what yankton did a heck of a job with the youth world championship mm-hmm Yankton has one of the best indoor facilities in the world. Yeah, it'll be it'll be good. You know, which is the Easton uh, Center there in uh, in Yankton. Yep. So it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Yeah, it's uh, and and like I said, if it weren't for Yankton, wouldn't happen. But I'm annoyed by some of these some of these uh, people on the internet kind of going Yankton, and it's it's only Americans bitching yeah. about it. By the way, yeah, large city elitist. Yeah, guess, whatever. I'm like, okay, you know, last month you were complaining. That we're going to have a world indoor in, in in Ankara, which is on, by the way. Right. And now you're complaining because it's be in Yankton. Yankton. I mean, come on. Some people are just never going to. You know what? The ones complaining aren't going to be there anyway. Yeah, they aren't going to be shooting. Cortina will be the site of the World Archery Field Championship, and that is enough for me to be in training mode. I want to go to Cortina to shoot. That is an awesome place for a world field. I don't. I'll have to Google Cortina. Bring your climbing rope. Okay. All let's right. do it. Oh, baby, this thing is going to be beautiful. Okay, so then we've got the World Archery Championship and the Para Championship in in uh, Netherlands. Netherlands. Yep, um, and then the World Archery 3D Championship will be in Canada. Yeah, they sent a bunch of Canadian shooters to the last World 3D, so that might have had some influence on it. You know, it's awesome. And I, That's I think great. they want to spread it from historically been in Europe, so yep. maybe they want to move it around a little bit. And then the World Archery Field Championship of 2020 comes to Yankton. Yeah, back to but Yankton. not the flat not NFAA where, fields. Right, they've and got a gnarly. Yeah, course. they have a course that I was told is one of the best in the world. I'm hearing the same. And so, I'm hearing that from shooters, not from not yeah. just from Bruce. I'm hearing that from shooters. Yeah, who know. a shooter who, if you ask me, he's the guy who, if I was going to defer all, any and all field archery matter to, it would be, I would defer it to him. And I, Are you I, thinking Jesse here? No. Oh. No, I'm not going to name names, but a guy who I trust. To, oh, well, listen, go ahead and name him. It's, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's our friend Dave. I don't know if I remember hearing that exactly from Dave, though. Okay. But it, I think it was Dave who told me that they have a gnarly course. So I didn't want to name him just because okay. maybe it wasn't Fair Dave. enough, but here's <laughs> the deal. Dave Cousins, if anybody knows yeah. gnarly field courses, he, he knows gnarly field yeah, courses. Yeah, if, if I could ask someone to set up a field course, it'd be Dave. Absolutely. You know, awesome. Yep. So 
another one of those really brilliant people in, in the sport, you know? Yes. Okay, so um, that sounds like a great package to get us ready for the 2020 Olympic Games, and it's not too soon to start talking about that. Wow. Yeah. Spooky. All right. So I'm just thinking there's like four or five ATA shows until until then. So. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're judging life by yeah. ATA shows. <laughs> yes. I'm judging life by how often I'm taking ibuprofen. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right. So listen, uh, Steve, it's been a pleasure doing these podcasts with you for the last uh, 20 episodes now. 20 of them in 2015. Amazing, isn't it? Wow, I don't even remember when we started. Uh, we started for Copenhagen. We started uh, the oh, week yeah, it was a couple, just before Copenhagen yeah, 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 with was. our prognostications, yeah. which didn't entirely work out. Because we had like three or four episodes in by the time we got there. We had this incredible weather in Copenhagen. We had, <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, my goodness, what a, what a year. We've actually had a heck of a great year. Yeah, truly. Now, looking back at uh, 2015, highlights for me personally, uh, Sarah Lopez and that world record. That's probably the highlight from which, my personal Which one? Yeah, okay, all of them, right? Yeah. All those world records. And Kibo Bay, winning yep. winning the world championship, the Olympic champion, yeah. now also the world champion. And also setting a world record. Yes. She did that at the university, I think. And grabbing me by the arm for a good look at my uh, Apple Watch. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, any day you get grabbed by the arm by Kibo Bay is a good day in my book. <laughs> How about you? Any, uh, any particular thoughts? Um, How about it, that medal you won in uh, Poland? Yeah, that was cool. Um, that was pretty cool. At the World I, Cup. Some of my favorites were, honestly, the first one, the f- it was my first ever you know, outdoor World Cup medal. Shanghai. Was, uh, no, it was Antalya. Okay. Antalya team. Always a great event. Yeah, it was fun. Always a great. Oh, boy. I'll tell it's, you what. If you, ever, if you ever have a bucket list item, go to a tournament in Antalya. Yeah, Antalya is cool. Um, shooting, shooting with Rio and and Bridger there, we, we got the win. And then another fun one for me that I still this day laugh at was, uh, was in Medellin. Braden and I were, were doing a shark, you know, shark, 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 shark fin above our head um, after every arrow. And we, we freaking pounded. Like, he missed his last arrow. I missed my first arrow, and I don't think we missed anything in between. Or he might have gotten all his. I don't remember. But, uh, yeah, we shot awesome, and uh, we won the gold medal there. And um, – Copenhagen was cool you know it it's uh rare that I travel to an archery tournament and don't shoot so so watching and announcing and uh, on YouTube and, yeah you and I did the uh yeah, it was cool that was that was fun and um you know I I hope that those opportunities continue to present themselves you know it's uh except at Vegas yeah <laughs> when I'm done shooting you know right but uh Copenhagen was awesome played a golf course there it was really cool so yeah that, that added to it I mean if the golf course hadn't been there I don't know if I would have felt the same Fair enough. Um, and, and note to self, next time you show up at a tournament venue and there's a giant freaking windmill, pack your extra layers. Yeah. Uh, other highlight for me was, of course, Mike Schlusser with that perfect score that will never be broken. Yeah, it's easy to forget that because it was so long ago. You know, it's, But it was in this it year. Feel, yeah, it was within this year, and it, it just seems like so much has gone on between. But, yeah, that one, I wish I had been there to see that. Um, I... I'm still speculating on what the next one to go is. I think I think something's going to fall this indoor season, and I I think it's going to be men's recurve world record. I'm I'm saying that you know with Brady having tied the world record four times, he's due. Yeah, I think Brady could, or I mean I think the women's record is five ninety two or five ninety three, and I think that one's going to go down too. And uh, Berenger Shue had had that record twice, by the way, that indoor really? world record. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know what, that one could go down in Nîmes. 
That is entirely possible. Mm-hmm. We could see it happen in Nîmes. Yep. Uh, it won't happen in Vegas, I don't think, but I think it could happen in Nîmes. Yeah. I'm- you may ask yourself, why do I say it won't happen in Vegas? I think it's because of the target butts in Vegas. I don't think they're favorable to that kind of thing. Yeah, they, they give it a lot of kicks. Yeah. I, I don't like them. Um, that's With all due respect to the sponsors of the target butts and all that stuff, they're, they're not <laughs> ideal for what they are. Nope, they, but, don't, they don't provide a flat enough surface. Exactly. But the ones in Nîmes are pretty good because they combine a Dinaj Domino with a uh, Stramit in the back. So the domino slows it down, and then you get the stramit to hold it firm. Okay. So you actually get you know good true results with that one. Yep. In most cases. Yeah. And um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out on a limb and say that we'll see a world record in name, either from a man or a woman in recurve. Recurve. Yep. Obviously, we won't in compound unless it's women. But yeah. Now the other the uh, other candidate for a world record is Ojin Hyuk. Uh, yeah, that's one I think it could who could drop it you know or. Kim Wojin. Yeah, name name another one, one of the ladies from the LH Koreans. team who are going to be there. Yep. And by the way, you know, uh, the Koreans are really starting to show their depth. When you look at what happened in in Bangkok, yeah. My word. Yeah. So That's another good. another highlight for me, I think, is the uh, first win of a World Cup by a Korean man in compound. Yeah, at Antalya. The shape of things to come, in my opinion. Hmm. I think the uh, take off your side, USA hat for a minute and just no. look at it objectively. Compound side is going to have a lot of parity for a long time because it's really hard for anybody so to dominate to, now. Yeah, it's. I mean, but wouldn't you say everybody's crazy. come up? the The level yeah. of skill has come up. Yeah, and uh, tuning ability, the ability yep. to make the equipment work right. Mm-hmm. I think all that's come up. All that's come up, and then just the significance of the events has helped it too, and and added to the prominence. And more people are shooting it. More people are shooting full seasons you know it's not just oh i'm gonna go to this event more people event. are committed yeah. to it yep and i think the research the surgence that we have seen of of world uh, domination by korea in compound is largely due to the adaptation of the compound for the asian games could be which is you know potentially the gateway for compound to make its way into the olympics in the uh not too distant future sometime in 12 14 years from now perhaps we'll see we yeah. will see because you know, that's a double-edged sword, you know. Um, being in the Olympic Games brings with it a lot of money and a lot of pressure. But speaking I'm just thinking, of, man, 2015 is almost over. I know. Oh, I haven't even finished shopping for Christmas yet, you know. I, um, yeah, I've got a, a similar situation. Isn't that a, what a problem to have? Yeah. My Christmas bill this year is going to be <laughs> my health care deductible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, oh, well, that's all right. You can always make more. You can, true. Anyway, I would like to say to all of our friends that I wish you a very prosperous, happy new year, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, and what am I missing? Oh, a lot of them, I'm sure. Oh. You know, whatever holidays you may celebrate. And a happy new year. Yeah, what a time to be alive, huh? You know what? We're very fortunate. Yeah. And we've got some great tournaments to look forward to. So, Steve, thanks for the the 20 podcasts we've done and looking forward to the next ones. We will probably have one prior to Neem. Okay. So yeah. maybe a little bit of a gap because uh, everybody's off to ATA. I'm mm-hmm. off to a operating room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go prior to Neem. Yeah, okay, maybe so. All right. <laughs> so for myself, George Tekmachub, and for Steve the Big Cat Anderson, Thank you for a great 2015, and we look forward to seeing you again in the next Easton podcast. That's end of show. End of show.